Lord God, please open our eyes and our ears this morning to behold your glory all the more. Please guard our hearts and our minds from running to the distractions of this world that stir up fear. Please cause us to seek your face all the days of our lives and to confidently wait on you and your will, knowing that it is perfect. Father, this morning, by your Spirit in us, help us to think much of Christ and little of ourselves. Amen. Keep your Bibles open in Psalm 27. Uh, We'll be working through that verse by verse, so it'll be helpful that you can look down and and reference. Um, Without fail, every year, as the NFL playoffs are getting started and the teams are determined who's going to be contending for the championship, there is, without fail, one fan, maybe even a, a few, who are so confident in their team's ability to win the Super Bowl that he will go ahead and get a tattoo of his team's logo in that year because he is so sure that they're going to win it. Right? And almost every time, they're wrong. And we laugh, and this, this man is now laughable because he's walking around with this tattoo on. Well, in just about an infinitely better way, King David is doing something similar in Psalm 27. As we'll see, he makes many bold statements, and he speaks with great boasting because he is so confident in the Lord. But unlike this football fan, David has placed his hope and his faith in the one thing that will not put him to shame. God will not fail. Though some may laugh today, none will laugh at the people of the Lord in the end. This confidence is seen in our verses this morning, starting in verses 1 through 3, and then again in verses 13 through 14, and they sort of bookend the psalm. Okay, And then sandwiched right between these are are declarations of faith and trust. And, and, and right in the middle is this rich prayer of King David. And so as we're considering this psalm and we're looking at the immediate context of King David and his life, uh, we'll find it very encouraging for us today as the church. The main point of this psalm and this sermon is that we as God's people would wait with confidence for the Lord. Wait with confidence for the Lord. And we'll look at this in four main parts. So the first point of our sermon is confidence in the Lord, and that's verses one through three. And then point two is desire for the Lord in verses four through six. Point three is going to be seeking the Lord in seven through ten. And then Our final point will be waiting on the Lord, verses 11 through 14. So confidence, desire, seeking, and waiting. Confidence in the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Desire for the Lord, 4 through 6. Seeking the Lord, 7 through 10. and Waiting on the Lord in verses 11 through 14. One note I want to make before we jump right in is this very important category that we as Christians are to have. And it's the idea of the, the already, not yet. Okay, And what we are to understand by this is that there are promises of the Lord, and simply because 
the Lord has given them as promises, they are sure. Okay, they are sure things. Even though the fullness or the consummation of that promise may not yet be realized or seen. Okay? So Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. One of the clearest examples of this already not yet, okay, is Jesus overcoming death at the cross. What was accomplished at the cross does not mean that man does not physically die anymore. But it does mean that death is not the end for all mankind. There is eternal life for those who are in Christ. So we have the already and the not yet. And when Christ returns, as he promised he would, then there really will be no more death for those who are in him. And so we can confidently say now, O death, where is your sting? Okay. So keep that in mind as we're going through already, not yet. Why this will be helpful for us in looking at Psalm 27 is because God's word calls us to wait on him. And there will be deliverance from things here in this life, but there will certainly be a sure and complete deliverance in Christ. So as we wait on the Lord, we really can wait with full confidence, even though the fullness of these things will not yet be realized immediately. And my aim is that as we go through this psalm, we'll see that a little more fleshed out. So let's go ahead and turn to verses 1 through 3. We'll see David's confidence in the Lord. Verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We can read the narrative of David's life in First and Second Samuel as we do, we learn that this man had a dramatic life. As a boy, he fought and he killed lions and bears and a giant. His father-in-law, King Saul, sought to destroy him with all of his power. Foreign enemies constantly attacked him. And his own son even attempted to overthrow him as king. He also sinned in great ways. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. He had more reason to fear than any of us likely ever will. Yet in all of this, David did not simply man up or uh, beat his chest and just had no fear. No, all throughout his life, it was the Lord who was his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. And the logic used here by the king is, if the Lord is these things then why would I be afraid or fear anything? Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I mentioned some of the physical darkness that came against David over his lifetime. And verses 2 and 3, we'll see those uh, pointed out a little more carefully. Uh, but there's also a moral darkness that we experience that is brought on by sin. A clear example of this can be seen in David's sin with uh, uh, Bathsheba against Uriah. How could a man after God's own heart sin in such great ways, right? Well, it doesn't take much for our own minds to begin thinking, am I really saved, right? Won't the Lord turn his face from me because of what I've done? And that darkness leaves us vulnerable, 
If you've ever tried to walk through or navigate a pitch black room, you know what this, this vulnerability is like. This is where the Lord as our light is such a comfort to us. We can see in Psalm 51 that David repents of his sin. He exposes himself before the Lord and he asks for mercy and the Lord shows him mercy. Light shines through this darkness. So it may be physical darkness that you're walking through, but it also might be a moral darkness. And in either instance, it is the Lord who is our light and our salvation. So look back at verse 1 with me, and I want us to notice just the overwhelming Christological nature here. The Lord is our light. And the Lord is our light because Jesus is our great prophet. All of Scripture is Christ's words, not just the red letters that might be in your Bible. And as our light, as our prophet, he is revealing himself to us. He is illuminating and guiding us through this world. We're no longer groping around in the darkness, trying to make our way, trying to understand who we are, what we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. Light allows us to clearly see these things as they are. The Lord who once said, let there be light, now provides the illumination needed to understand sin and to know salvation from it through Christ. His words send all the lies of this world running. In John 18, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If sin is exposed and shown to be the empty folly that it is, why do we fear it or why do we believe its lies? We have God's true words guiding our path. The light doesn't just reveal the sin, but it shows us the way of salvation through the Son. That is our hope. The Lord is also our salvation, as David says. And he's our salvation because Jesus is our great high priest. And he made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. It wasn't a spotless lamb. No, he was the spotless lamb who was slain. And as our salvation, through his shed blood, we are saved from sin and our fears and our worries. He has reconciled us sinners to a holy God, making us righteous in his sight. And even now, Jesus is interceding before the Father, bringing our prayers and our petitions to him. And then thirdly, we see Jesus is our stronghold because he is our king. He is seated on his throne with all authority under him. And as our stronghold, he is defending us from the evil in this world. He's conquering all of his in our enemies. If the Lord is our stronghold or our defense, then not only do we see through the darkness that's once blinded us, but God has set us high in a safe place, impenetrable. So as we are nearing the end of the month of October, and we remember the Protestant Reformation, how fitting that we consider the Lord as our stronghold, as we just sang, a mighty fortress is our God, wrote Martin Luther, a bulwark never failing. 
So if you do nothing else this week, please memorize Psalm 27.1 and spend the week marinating and chewing on these glorious truths of who Christ is for us and watch your fears just become so small. Whom shall you fear? So let's think for a moment. What are our fears? Do we grow anxious worrying about losing our jobs or barely making it financially? Teenagers, do you think about graduating high school and the uncertainty of what's to come next just looks like a tidal wave to you? Did you get a call from your doctor recently? And was it out of concern for your well-being or maybe out of concern for your kids' health? Have you lost somebody recently? And you're pretty sure there's no way you're going to be able to make it through this life without them. Or did another year pass and God still has not brought you a spouse? And you wonder if he ever will. Or when you communicate the gospel with a family member or a friend, are you afraid that you so butchered it? There is no way they will ever believe, let alone maybe even speak to you again. All of these thoughts and emotions, they're realities because we live in a sinful world. It may not be hard for us to immediately make a list in our minds of these anxious fears that plague us daily or even weekly. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to make a list of them. Oh, actually name them, write them out. If you're a single person, maybe do this with a friend who knows you. Or if you're married, do this with a spouse, uh, your spouse. <laughs> do, this, um, do this as a family, right? Doing this with others uh, helps because they can see the blind spots that we're so quick to miss, right? And then deal with them the way we're seeing King David do. Meditate on the word of the Lord. How has Christ revealed truth? How has he offered deliverance? And, and knowing that he reigns over all of these things, write these passages down from your Bible and meditate on those. We're very quick to recognize our weaknesses and, and are plagued by our fears and we just think about them constantly. But we're not as quick to then turn to the truth and meditate on that. If you are seeking the face of the Lord, but there is still darkness in your life, that is because Christ has not yet come. But the Lord is using that to untether our hearts from seeking the things of this world. So, if if a fear of yours actually manifests itself, if something really does happen, this doesn't mean that the Lord has failed because our final hope was not in those things themselves. It was in him. Continuing in verses uh, 2 and 3, David goes on in his confidence. He says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. First Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what a fitting picture as King David speaks of his enemies as seeking to eat up my flesh. Armies come against him for war, but David does not fear. He is so confident in the Lord why? 
because these enemies run in darkness. They do not have the light. So they are the ones, he says, who stumble and fall. Psalm 2 speaks in this way of the Lord looking on the plans of the enemies of this world and laughing because it's done in vain. They stumble and they fall in their plans and their efforts. Uh, one of the books I really benefited from, from theologian Michael Reeves, is called Rejoice and Tremble. And he writes of David's confidence in the Lord in this way. It is beauty that kills the raging beast of anxiety. See, for example, how in Psalm 27, David speaks of the Lord's light and salvation as the balm for his fears. When describing the Lord as his stronghold, refuge, and joy, David focuses on the beauty of the Lord. Here is truth for every Christian, Reeves says, who needs the strength to rise above his or her anxieties, or who needs the strength to pursue an unpopular but righteous course. The fear of the Lord is the only fear that imparts strength. So we are not to fear man. The Lord is good, and he only gives us good things. So we must look to him to provide us with what we need in this life. But remember that the Lord promise us, uh, promises us suffering in this life, not ease. So look to him to provide, but also trust him when he doesn't provide in the way that we imagine is best. He is still good. And what he has for us is still good. So the question to ask is, are we waiting on the goodness of the Lord? Or are we only looking to the good things that he can provide us? Martin Luther ends his famous hymn in this way, as we sang, The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. So what David is doing, what we must do, is entrust ourselves to our faithful creator, James read for us in uh, Romans chapter 8, and it concludes in this way. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our aim and our hope. We can be as sure as Paul is and as confident as David was because it wasn't in and of themselves. Their faith was in the God of their salvation. And so knowing that God provides for his children in this way, it should cause our hearts to long to be with him, to be where he is. And so David's going to turn, and we're going to turn with him to this second point in verses 4 through 6 to see the desire for the Lord. Before we look on that, let me make a note that even if you can't quite put your finger on it, we are all just confident that if we just had one thing, we would be satisfied, right? Most likely that one thing corresponds to that list of fears that you've made, right? If I just had good health or if I just made that much more money, whatever it is, these are revealing our heart's desires. And so David turns from the truths in verses 1 through 3, and he's now praying to the Lord, and he says here in verse 4, look with me, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The very best desire of our hearts is for the presence of God. I really like the, uh, the New American Standard translation of this passage. Listen how this reads. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. It's not just that David wants to be in the presence of the Lord, but he wants to be there and he wants to worship. He wants to get everything out of it that he physically can. David uses these words like house and temple, and later we'll see tent. And he's describing this cherished place of his heart. He had physical locations like the tabernacle, and while he did not build the temple, he worked to make preparations to do so, so that when Solomon came, everything was in place and and the, the temple could be built. But these are places in the Old Covenant where the Lord dwelt among his people in a very unique way. And David's desire here is to be as close to the Lord as he possibly can, to behold God's beauty and to meditate on him, to bask in his marvelous light. Think about the spectacular scene in Isaiah 6 that many of us know very, very well, where the prophet Isaiah stands before the throne of God in this vision he has, and he's quick to admit his unworthiness to be there. He's a man of unclean lips, but he would never say, take me away from here. No, let me stay here all the days of my life. Oh God, let me be in your presence forevermore. If the presence of the Lord is not your greatest desire, then search your heart for what is. What other person or thing has been valued over this? Psalm 23 says that if the Lord is your shepherd, you will dwell in his house forever. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So where is our light and our salvation? Again, it is with the Lord. It is in the presence of our Savior. But the house of the Lord is quite different for us today. The dwelling place of God is in the hearts of man. The tabernacle and the temple were shadows and they were types of the glory that was to come. And my hope is that we as a church love to be here, right? Not necessarily in this physical building, but gathered together as a body of believers. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together, listen, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ has called us, believers, out of this world, and he gathers us into his church. And so we as saints gather together each Sunday to do worship, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul encourages the church in Corinth in a similar way. 
But when one turns to Christ or to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a great picture of the already not yet category that I mentioned at the beginning. We don't worship Christ in church with lots of images. And I would argue actually attempting that would be more damaging than it would be good. No, Jesus has given us his word. And it being faithfully read and preached is giving us the clearest picture we can have of Christ in this life. We already see Christ but not face to face. But there will be a day when we do not just hear, but we will see. What David longed for and what we long for, one day we will behold our Savior face to face. The dwelling place of God will be with men. And we will do what we are doing right now, which is worship, beholding. This is to be our confidence And it is to be the greatest desire of our hearts. John Piper once asked, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? My fear is that many of us are satisfied with these benefits of Christ, the good things that he shows his creation, but not with Christ himself. And so pray without ceasing that he would be the one thing that our hearts desire above all else even the good things that he's given. In light of this, David then goes on in his prayer, and he says in verse 5, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Again, the confidence just pours out of the the king in this prayer. Um, Again, the NASB, it says, He will conceal me in his tabernacle. And I really like this image because it's pointing us back to the dwelling place of God in the Old Covenant, the Holy of Holies, where only the the high priest could go once a year. David is defining just what he meant when he said the Lord was his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. For us in the New Covenant, this side of Christ on the cross Matthew 27, 51 tells us that Jesus died on the cross. And when he did, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This demonstrated that through Christ, we now have access to the Lord by his spirit in us. And this is an incredible paradigm for the believer, right? In the moment of need and trouble, we cry out to the Lord and he hears us. But we are not physically plucked up and set inside some fortress. And yet our King, Jesus, is reigning with all authority. He defends us from our enemies according to his sovereign rule. And so there is no safer place for us to run to than to him. 
This is the idea behind the place of a sanctuary, right? That, that term that we're, is so, so rightly churchy, right? Sanctuary, the place of worship where one goes to be secure. In Victor Hugo's novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the hero Quasimodo, he intervenes to save the life of Esmeralda, uh, and she was to be hanged for breaking the law. And as he runs from the authorities, he carries her into the Notre Dame Cathedral. And as he does, he's crying out loud over and over, sanctuary. And it was understood that the house of the Lord was no place for man's civil matters. And so as long as she stayed inside, she was safe. So this can be uh, somewhat of a helpful picture for us as we are uh, looking at this, coming to the worship of Christ each Lord's Day, Jesus has saved us, and because he is now in us, we are secure. We can be confident now. As David says, he will lift me high upon a rock. He is our rock and our salvation. Whom shall I fear? Verse 6 says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Uh, if you read in 1 Samuel, uh, Israel's first king, King Saul, it says he was a head taller than everyone else. And this is what, uh, what gave the people confidence to him as their king. He looked the part. But that was the problem. Because Saul's confidence was not in the Lord. It was in himself. And it's no surprise then that much of his life was filled with anxiety and paranoia and fear. And he fell mightily. But David, the humble shepherd boy, the, the youngest of his brothers, he had great confidence in the Lord. And so his head is lifted high. And with this great confidence in the Lord, David's response is, as we see, this appropriate rejoicing in what the Lord has done. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is worship of the Lord. And as the king has this attitude towards the house of the Lord, towards his, his dwelling place, this being the greatest desire of his heart, it is expected then that the people will follow the king's example. And so, though this psalm is coming from the perspective and prayer of David, He's referring to the house of the Lord, this physical structure, this public place where all of God's people, not just the king, were to draw near and to worship. This was to be the desire of Israel's heart. But Jeremiah tells us that they had a heart of stone. They needed a heart of flesh. They did not desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life, so they did not seek the Lord. If we truly desire something, we desperately want it, then we will go after it. If you truly desire something, then you will sacrifice other things. You will make certain preparations. and You will go to great lengths to get what you desire. So with this in mind, let's look now at our third point, seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord, verses 7 through 10. This rich prayer of David continues as he now begins to make supplications for the great desire of his heart. Hear me, O Lord, it says in verse 7, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. 
We're given a uh, behind-the-scenes look at the king's thoughts and his prayers. What was happening for David to be able to confidently exclaim verses 4 through 6? We're seeing these prayers. Seeking the Lord here begins with prayer. As Christians, the Holy Spirit has given us new natures, a new love. And so if we are wanting to pursue that love, the first step in this is prayer. We depend on the Lord, not just for our salvation, but for all things. And so do as David does here and pray to the Lord and trust that our words are not just going out into the void, but they are being heard perfectly by the Father because Christ is interceding for us. So pray that the Lord would continue to grow in us a deeper hunger for him. And like we'll see in verse 11, that he would teach us his way. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David is seeking to be obedient to God's will. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 4, right, a few books into the Bible, the context of the chapter looks something like this in chapter 4. The Lord commands obedience to his law. He forbids idolatry, right? You'll only worship the one true God. And then he reminds the people that he alone is God, okay? And right in the middle of Deuteronomy 4 is, is verse 29. It says, but from there, being the promised land, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him or search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what David is after. He knows this was to be the focus of God's people once they entered into the promised land. And so now David, many, many, many years later, is saying, the Lord has been good to us. We've been in the promised land now, and I want to continue to uphold this commandment because we're seeing the benefits of this. We're we're living blessed. In Deuteronomy, we are also told of the promise of God to his people regarding the king himself. In chapter 17, it emphasizes that if the king is faithful to seek the Lord, then all the people will prosper. But seek here in Psalm 27, verse 8, it's not singularly addressed, okay? It's not going to an individual, but it's written to a plurality. So the king here is not to be the only one who seeks the Lord. It is to be all of God's people, Let me make a quick application. Children, just because your parents are Christians does not automatically make you a Christian, okay? The Lord has called you to seek him as well. So spend some time this afternoon, parents, children, talk with one another, explain to your children, or children, ask your parents, when did Jesus open your eyes so that you would seek after him? And how do I seek after God? So David then turns in his prayer to verse 9. He says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David has emphasized the greatness of being in the presence of the Lord. In fact, that being the greatest thing ever. And so for that to ever not be the case, well, there is nothing conceivably worse than this. 
But the Lord will never forsake those who are seeking his face. So David is calling on the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. And we should too, but we do this again with confidence because of Christ. Remember Christ who cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ stood in our place, and he paid the penalty for our sins. So now with confidence, we rest in that finished work of Jesus, not ourselves, knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us. David also says, don't hide your face from me. So what does this mean to see this man after God's own heart making these requests? The desire of his heart is to be in the presence of the Lord. What does this look like? Well, it's faithful repentance. We don't say, "Uh, yeah, I sinned, but God said he would forgive me. He won't turn his face from me. And so I'm good, right? No, rather we say, against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. And though I deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth into utter darkness, yet you have shown me mercy in Christ. It is a confidence in the Lord to be the unchanging, the merciful Savior. Lastly, in verse 10, in seeking the Lord, David prays, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Another way that this could be translated, maybe... um, makes a little more sense to us in English is um, even if my mother or my father and my mother had forsaken me. But what we're seeing is that David is so confident in the Lord that even if the earthly provider and protector given to him, your mom and your dad, even if they were to abandon him, the Lord would still care for him and bring him into his presence. I know that there are some here this morning who have never known one or both of their parents, and I would say many uh, who do know their parents don't have the relationship with them that they would like that to be. No earthly relationship can be what one has with the Lord. The world cannot provide for us like our Heavenly Father. And what a great gift we're given in the church to have brothers and sisters who are closer to us even than blood, Right? Think of Christ's words, who are my mother and my brothers? Right? So like David, if the desires of our heart are to be in the presence of the Lord and we are seeking his face, we are going after that desire, then the next thing we would see are intentional steps made toward that end. So let's look now at our final point, verses 11 through 14, waiting on the Lord waiting on the Lord. It may seem uh, nonsensical to make waiting the intentional step to the desire of our hearts. So let's, let's carefully consider this. Here's David's thoughts, thought process. <clears throat> if Adam and Eve fell from the presence of the Lord in Eden and the Lord sent them out, we Israel are here in the promised land. We're joyfully making sacrifices to the Lord at his tent But if we aren't faithful to obey his word, then he will send us out as well. And there's this enemy coming into the land seeking to destroy me. So fittingly, David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead lead me on level path because of my enemies. As we've already seen with the Lord being David's stronghold, 
is that there is a defense from these enemies. But Psalm 1 makes clear that the way of the Lord is the way of the blessed life. And so if, if we want the blessed life, as David wanted the blessed life for he and his people, we need the Lord to continue teaching us his word. Again, circling back to verse 1, God will do this for us because Jesus is our light. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the only path to glory, so he will teach us himself through his word. David also prays in verse 12, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. This is a a little bit more personal of an anecdote from the king. But he will not fear because God is his salvation, as he said so boldly already. David cries out to the Lord because he is confident in the Lord's ability to deliver him. If we know our Bibles well, then we're going to make some helpful connections with this verse to Christ and to his church. In Matthew 26, 59, it reads, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. Christ endured the false witnesses that rose against him in order to obtain salvation for his own. And so in crucifying Jesus, the Father used the Jews to accomplish his will for redemption. Later then in Acts 9, Luke describes uh, Saul as breathing out threats or violence against the disciples of the Lord, against the church. But what does it do to the church? It doesn't stamp out its growth. It further stokes its reaches and and it spreads it all the way across to other nations. So brothers and sisters, we can have confidence in our Lord who is seated on his throne, working all things for his glory and for our good. So we can wait on him knowing he will accomplish his will. David looks beyond those violent false witnesses and is confident. Verse 13 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In the 1850s, there was a Scottish missionary named John G. Patton, and he uh, was preparing to depart for the New Hebrides, right? It's the chain of islands near Australia. And the native people group there were known cannibals. And Patton knew that the gospel was to go to the ends of the earth and that these cannibals needed the good news of salvation. So as Patton was preparing to leave Scotland for these islands, there were many who knew him and loved him who were trying to deter him from going because they knew the dangers that awaited him and that he'd likely never return. In his autobiography, John Patton writes of one specific interaction. I just, it's just so comforting. It reads, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, 
It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. This life that we have, the things that we have that the Lord has given us, they're just, they're just a vapor. But for those who wait on the Lord, there is great confidence in our eternal God. King David is confident that the Lord has heard his prayers and that the Lord will be faithful as he has always been faithful. And so can we this morning. This confidence is summed up in this final verse, and it's, this, it's really a call to wait. It says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This strength and courage is not something that we muster up in ourselves. This, this strength and this confidence, it is Christ who is in us. It's outside of ourselves. It is him. He is our confidence. And this waiting is not a passive waiting like we think about when we're standing in a line for something. No, this is an active waiting. It is a preparation because we're getting ready for something, for a day that is drawing near. Don't forget, right, the already, not yet. Christ has already purchased us through his blood. We are his and nothing will separate us from him. But we are not yet with him. And so we are waiting. Be faithful each day with the Lord, uh, with what the, th the things that the Lord puts before us, knowing that those are preparing us to meet our Savior. But ask yourself, are you enjoying the pleasures of this world too much? Maybe Jesus isn't worth waiting for. Is this life God's word calls me to live worth it? Samuel Stennett, uh, he wrote this older uh, hymn, and it's called, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. Jordan being the river, and the, the, the scene is on one side of the river looking over the Jordan to the promised land. And the hymn ends like this. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Over all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll forever be blessed. For I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. Jesus is worth waiting for because he's already our only comfort in this life. He is the light of the world, our salvation and our refuge. We should then rightly desire to be in his presence, to know him and to see him face to face. The path to this is obedient faith made possible only by his obedient faith. Let us then rely on the Lord to lead us in this with confidence in our hearts as we wait for his return. Let's pray.